Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to be along for some more half-assed history. This week on the engine, we're going to be having a chat about Napoleon Bonaparte, the legendarily famous French commander and ultimately, of course, emperor, who forged the French Empire and conquered a huge proportion of continental Europe in the wake of the French Revolution. Now, this bloke, one of the most famous people in history, full stop, and for very good reason, He's one of the greatest conquerors the world has ever seen. He was gifted with a military genius that saw him expand French influence from Spain to Russia. And we talk about the influence, the impact that you know people have had on history, the course of world history. Um, in this podcast, it's, it's a reoccurring theme, particularly recently as we've talked about some of these hugely famous figures from history. And Napoleon really is a bloke who shifted the course of European history and in doing so shifted the course of world history really you know this was a century before or more before the world wars of course but Napoleon's influence has echoed through the centuries and set up a lot of the conflicts and and crises that that characterize the the 20th century that that have obviously gone and have a knock-on effect on, on our modern world today so when I say that Napoleon was one of those people that has altered the course of world history, you really do need to believe that with this bloke because there is a reason he is as famous today as he is. Now, you will have noticed, of course, that once again, this is a two-parter. I Look, I really tried. I, when I sat down to write this episode, I said to myself, look, I can do it in one. I'll just be succinct. I'll be concise and I'll get through it nice and quick. But as you'll find out while listening to this episode, despite me being succinct and concise, we still only get across about half of this bloke's story in in a 40-minute episode. There is so much going on. There's just too much to talk about. So we're going to do it in two parts once again. This week, we'll talk about his early career, his rise through the ranks of the French army in the wake of the revolution, ultimately how he took power as the leader of the French Republic, uh, and how he went on to lead France to victory after victory on the battlefield, and then ultimately was crowned as Emperor of the French. Now, at the first stages of the, the Napoleonic Wars, the earlier stages of his career, unmitigated success for the French, couldn't stop winning. Napoleon extended his territorial reach across half the European continent. But as you probably know, in time he would come unstuck. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, his infamous Russian campaign, his defeat, his exile, his brief return to power during the Hundred Days, and then, of course, the Battle of Waterloo. There's so much other stuff to talk about on top of his military career, though. His historical perception versus the reality of the blokes, some, some of the often skipped over parts of his legacy that really don't reflect too well in him as a leader, um, his personal life, his romantic affairs. We're going to try to cram as much of this into two episodes as we can. So all that and more in the next two weeks. As I say, we've got so much to get across. So let's not waste time. Let's jump into it. Here we go. We're going all the way back. We're going all the way back here to 1769, to the island of Corsica in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, today, as you may know, Corsica is part of France, just as it was at the time of Napoleon's birth, but only just, let me tell you, because in the very same year that Napoleon was born, in 1769, Corsica was actually ceded to France by Genoa, right? Although, at the time, Corsica claimed independence as a largely unrecognised republic, but 
France took control of this island in 1769 and incorporated it properly as a French province the next year. So Napoleon was very nearly Italian rather than French because, as I say, at the time of his birth, France had only just taken possession of Corsica and before that it was it was you know a, a possession of Genoa which is was an Italian realm and you know the Italianness of Corsica uh, is reflected in how Napoleon's family actually spelt their name at the time of his birth he wasn't born Napoleon Bonaparte he was actually born into the Buonaparte family. It was uh, it was later Frenchified in the years to come into uh, Bonaparte but anyway young Napoleon we're going to stick to his first name uh, through these episodes because obviously that's how history knows him best. Um, Napoleon was born into a relatively wealthy Corsican family with Italian roots. Um, and by all accounts, you know, he was a boisterous and, and rowdy kid. Uh, his mum was quite strict and reined him in as best she could. Uh, and at the age of nine, he was bundled off to a boarding school on the French mainland. Now, he didn't have a great time there. Uh, he didn't speak French at all at this point. His native language was, of course, Corsican, and um, uh, he could speak and read Italian, but he didn't speak French, and he didn't learn the language until he went to this school and still, even then, didn't do a great job of, of picking up French. He had a strong Corsican accent, an accent that apparently he kept for his entire life. And he never got the... Even after learning how to speak French, he never really got the hang of the spelling. And... You know, we're not going to come down too hard on him for this. Um, I don't really blame him for not understanding French spelling because, I mean, you know, just have a look at how the French spell their words for, I don't know, for example, the word for birds, right, oiseau, is spelt O-I-S-E-A-U-X. So I don't know if, you know, some blokes are just playing French Scrabble one day and a guy had an X and a board a board full of vowels and he's like, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make something up here. And, and, and it just got completely out. But then again, maybe we, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, ripping on the French language too much as idiot Anglophones here because, you know, I mean, look at my last name. It's 50% silent letters. So maybe it's not a fight I should pick. Anyway, poor young Napoleon. He was picked on for his accent. He was picked on for being bad at French and also for, you know, being quite small as a kid, which we're going to talk about a little bit later on. But uh, once he finished at school, uh, you know, once once he'd been bullied all the way through his education, uh, he headed to the French Military Academy in Paris in 1784, and he became the first Corsican to graduate from it. Uh, I mean, that, that does sound like it's quite an achievement, but remember, he was born literally the year that of course, he became part of France, so I don't know how anyone else would have been able to beat him. Anyway, um, he became a second lieutenant in an artillery regiment of the French army. And it's interesting that he was put in artillery for a number of reasons. First of all, this was a, a growing and emerging uh, aspect to military conflict uh, in this period. Artillery and cannons and all of these sorts of uh, you know heavier weapons were beginning to take an increased role in, in warfare in Europe. And Napoleon being, being assigned to artillery would have very important consequences later on when he was fighting his campaigns. He, he valued artillery very highly. He deployed it very, very effectively and very successfully, perhaps given his expertise as a younger man when he was, uh, uh, when he was assigned to artillery regiments. But the other interesting thing about it is obviously, and I say, as I say, we'll talk about this in more detail later on, Napoleon, not a particularly tall man, and really didn't have the cut or the bearing of a traditional cavalry officer who tended to these you know the, the cavalry officers tend to be larger more imposing just more physically present and, and Napoleon wasn't a huge bloke as we'll as we'll come to so 
a defining moment in his career, even very early, being deployed as a second lieutenant in an artillery regiment of the French army. But even after being uh, assigned in this way, ideologically speaking, uh, Napoleon didn't change his views too much. He was a staunch Corsican nationalist. He still firmly believed in Corsican independence, d- despite being a an officer in the French army, he still very firmly believed that his homeland should be free from the French yoke. And he served unremarkably as part of the French army until 1789. And of course, in 1789, as you may know, the French Revolution broke out. And this was a turning point in not just his career, but many people's careers, of course. But for Napoleon, it meant that he returned to Corsica. The reason he returned to Corsica was because the the fight that broke out there wasn't just between revolutionaries and royalists. No, there was a third faction the Corsican nationalists who were fighting for Corsican independence. And of course, initially at least, Napoleon's sympathies were with the nationalists. Before long, however, after fighting this three-way conflict in Corsica, Napoleon was actually won over by the revolutionaries and their ideals. And ultimately, he was made an artillery commander of the revolutionary forces in Corsica. And it was here, for the first time, that his strategic and tactical genius began to come to the fore. Napoleon's gift for military planning was instrumental in capturing the city of Toulon uh, as part of this conflict. And, and in capturing Toulon, that, he didn't just capture the city. He also captured the attention of the Provisional Revolutionary Government, the Committee of Public Safety. They heard about this young bloke from Corsica with a strong military background. They heard about what he'd pulled off in the siege and the capture of Toulon. They heard about how he'd helped the revolutionaries enormously in their successes on the island. And as a result, Napoleon was rewarded for these successes. Most handsomely, he was promoted from colonel to brigadier general and given command of the artillery of the French Army of Italy. Now, this bloke is 24 years old, very, very young indeed, and he's already a senior commanding officer in the upper ranks of the Revolutionary Army. And wouldn't you believe it in what will become a very clear trend throughout you know, what we're talk- we'll talk about this week, Napoleon kept kicking goals with both feet. Look at him go straight away once he's put in charge of the, uh, the French army of, uh, of Italy. He marches straight into the kingdom of Sardinia and captures towns and cities just like that. No stopping him. However, his career actually suffered when he dodged his next assignment. Even after his success in Sardinia, uh, his career took a bit of a downturn when he was asked to fight the War of the Vendée. This was a war against the royalists in a counter-revolution once the French Revolution had taken hold. And Napoleon didn't want to fight there. It effectively would have been a demotion as he would have been transferred to an infantry regiment where he, his art, expertise with artillery wouldn't have been uh, at its best use and he would have been serving under higher ranking officers. And so he, I don't know if he feigned or just claimed ill health, but managed to avoid the posting. And this meant that he lost favour with those in charge and his career suffered. But it wasn't long before he was given another opportunity to prove himself, and prove himself he did in a battle known as the 13th of Vendemiaire. Napoleon had been serving against the backdrop of the French Revolution, which, I mean, you know, to put it mildly, is just way too massive for us to properly tackle here in this episode. I've I've kind of whizzed through a lot of the details of this part of uh, Napoleon's career because, again, the French Revolution, just a gargantuan historical topic for us to get across. It would, I mean, never mind a two-part, it would be a bloody ten-part to to do the French Revolution, one of the most important historical events within the last, you know, 200, 250 years. 
Um, but that was the backdrop of Napoleon's military activities at this point. And not everyone was thrilled with what was going on with the revolution. There were still plenty of royalists who wanted the revolution undone. And in, in October 1795, these royalists rose up in rebellion, another counter-revolution against the nascent French Republic in Paris. They attacked its national convention, essentially its parliament. And Napoleon was given the chance to defend the convention from these royalist forces. Now, you'll remember we've talked about the fact that Napoleon is an artillery specialist. And in order to defend the National Convention from these uprising royalists, he filled the streets of Paris with huge cannons. And he used these cannons to great effect to blast the royalists to bits. He loaded these uh, these, these huge heavy guns full of grape shot and blew them to pieces. The royalists fled, the convention had been defended, and Surprise, surprise, the powerful and influential politicians whose lives had been defended by Napoleon were rather grateful to this young fella who had lined the streets with heavy artillery. And so his career took off like never before. The gratitude of these politicians directly translated to money and fame and increased career prospects because he was given command of the army of Italy altogether and he set off to fight what are now known as his Italian campaigns. But not before he got married, by the way. I should mention this. In 1796, he married a woman named Josephine de Beauharnais, who was a minor French aristocrat whose first husband had been guillotined. Now, their marriage, we're going to discuss it more next week, but to give you a sense of how things sort of, how they started, Josephine had uh, a bit of a thing for powerful men, and, and she and Napoleon had been, uh, they'd been knocking boots for a while before they ended up getting married. But the marriage was uh, it was an interesting one. I mean, not only was Josephine five years older than Napoleon, and so on the marriage certificate, uh, her age was reduced by four years and his age was increased by 18 months to make them seem a little, little bit closer in age. Um, Napoleon was absolutely besotted with Josephine. Couldn't get enough. Absolutely loved this. Absolutely loved it, right? And wrote her countless love letters while he was off on campaign and carried a picture of her everywhere. Apparently he'd smooch it several times a day, just little, you know, little kisses on this, uh, on this picture all day, every day. While Josephine firstly hardly ever replied to you know, Napoleon's letters, just left him on read a bunch of the time. But also when she did reply, she was not gushy and romantic in the slightest and also had an affair while... He was off, you know, conquering the pants off the off northern Italy. She's off again, hopping into bed with the, you know, someone else altogether. And Napoleon eventually returned the favour as well. But look, we'll get into we'll get into the ins and outs of their marriage next week as we uh, as we sort of delve into that area of of Napoleon's personal life uh, more deeply. Anyway, gets married two days later, heads off uh, to fight in Italy and absolutely demolished the Kingdom of Sardinia once again, and this time defeated the Austrian forces who had come to the aid of their Italian allies. Now, the Austrians had an interesting matchup against Napoleon. They really didn't learn their lesson, as we will discuss, and this is the first of many devastating defeats that the Austrians would be would, would suffer at the hands of Napoleon here. And... Uh, by the beginning of 1797, Napoleon had blasted his way through northern Italy and was actually bearing down on the Austrian heartlands themselves, making his way towards Vienna. And he seemed unstoppable. 
His in-depth knowledge and and understanding of of classical military strategy combined with his use of modern techniques with artillery formations and and other tactics like concealment and envelopment and highly mobile mobile artillery deployment meant that this bloke just – you couldn't pop the brakes on this bloke whatsoever. He tore his way through Austria. The Austrians all begin to panic. They realize they're, they're right up against the wall here. And so they start desperately seek a peace settlement, which came at a very high cost to them, let me tell you. To secure peace and to stop Napoleon from coming all the way to their capital, the Austrians gave France, they just gave up a bunch of land to France as a, you know, as part of this peace agreement. They gave them not just northern Italy, but also the low countries, what today we call uh, the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg. And France has come out of this, they've absolutely, they've, they've, they've made it like a bandit here. Napoleon has, has romped his way through Austria taken all of this land off of them, and then he's walking around with, you know, with a tip of the hat going, thanks very much, a bloke, see in a couple of years to do it all again. Um, interestingly, by the way, Napoleon made a secret agreement with, uh, with the Austrians, right? Uh, he agreed that he would conquer Venice on his way out and hand it over to the Austrians as sort of a bit of a you know a bit of a bargaining a bit of a bargaining chip there, uh, which he did before heading back home to France. He conquered Venice, uh, which ended over a thousand years of Venetian independence, uh, and also saw him establish a precedent that would uh, remain with him for the for the rest of his career. When he and his troops plundered and looted the city, taking with them countless artistic and cultural treasures, uh, they took him away from Venice, took him back to France, and that is something that Napoleon did a lot of throughout his campaigns. One of the greatest art thieves in history. Let me tell you, we're going to talk about uh, this more throughout you know, this episode and the next one. Anyway, first Italian campaign in the books were a resounding success for Napoleon, and he heads back to France to great acclaim. What a legend. Get around him. People are absolutely loving his work. Good on you, mate. Can't believe how well you've done here. But he's just getting started, of course, because realising that a threat to the young French Republic was, of course, the the traditional enemy of the French, the the British, Napoleon began to think about how France might be able to contest their hostile neighbours on the other side of the English Channel. British naval supremacy at this point overwhelmingly dominant. The key to British power was at sea. And Napoleon realised that if the French were to meaningfully contest the British, they would have to go up against the mighty Royal Navy. So what did Napoleon do to contest this British naval supremacy? Rather obviously, he attacked Egypt. I mean, you're probably going, what? Wait, back it up. Why Egypt? He's trying to contest British sea power and he's attacking Egypt. Well, there's a very good reason for this, because even before the Suez Canal, Egypt was a very important waypoint for the British in accessing their colonial interests in India. So Napoleon's plan, therefore, was to conquer Egypt, bring it under French influence and cut the British off from their colonial wealth via this route. So Napoleon he got, his, oh, he got his ships together. He sailed to Egypt. He captured Malta on the way, just for good measure, as, as you do. And then, after landing in Egypt, won a series of battles against the British-aligned Egyptians there, including the Battle of the Pyramids, which took place 25 kilometers away from the pyramids themselves. Not a very well-named battle. Um, however, he was ultimately defeated on water, as you might expect, by Horatio Nelson during the Battle of the Nile. Uh, huge setback 
for French naval ambitions as the British destroyed essentially the entire French navy that uh, that Napoleon had brought with him. So a devastating loss for Napoleon at the hands of, of Nelson and of course wouldn't be won't, won't be his last one as I'm sure uh, many of you know with the Battle of Trafalgar looming as part of the war of the, of the Third Coalition. Anyway, broadly speaking, it didn't get much better for Napoleon in Egypt. Even after the string of early victories, the Egyptian campaign was a military failure for the French. And when it comes to Napoleon specifically, it came along with some pretty horrific behaviour from the bloke as well. For instance, he ordered the execution of thousands of prisoners by either stabbing with bayonets or drowning so as to save bullets. And again, he allowed his men to to plunder and pillage cities and in some cases do a lot worse to the people that lived in there. Um, And additionally, it wasn't just his enemies that suffered. It was his own soldiers in some cases when there was an outbreak of bubonic plague amongst uh, amongst the French troops. Napoleon ordered that his afflicted soldiers were poisoned to death with opium so the plague wouldn't spread. So some pretty bloody ordinary stuff there from Napoleon. And given his, re- his, his reputation, his legacy as, as this great conqueror, some of this stuff tends to be overlooked, but we are going to hold it to account. And there's a couple of other things we'll, we'll bring up that you know really don't reflect too well on Napoleon. I mean, you know, we tend to sort of laud and ad- admire these great conquerors, despite the fact that they're, death, you know, con- they're, they're responsible for the deaths of countless millions. But there is, you know, there are certain lines that shouldn't be crossed, and I would argue that mercilessly executing prisoners and allowing, you know, the the your troops to run roughshod over conquered cities and you know killing your own troops is probably well and truly over that line. So Napoleon's certainly not getting everything right. Anyway, his Egyptian campaign. Before we move on, also resulted in some some other interesting and, and somewhat unfortunate consequences as well. Quite separate from the military affairs, Napoleon brought scientists and, and researchers with him into Egypt. Um, and it was during this campaign in Egypt under Napoleon that uh, the Rosetta Stone, amongst many other uh, you know, legendary cultural artefacts, uh, were found. And the Rosetta Stone, in case you don't know, a very important part of deciphering ancient Egyptian scripts. Um, it has a political decree written on it in three different languages. One of them is ancient Egyptian written in hieroglyphs. So a very important part of, uh, of, of deciphering ancient Egyptian was the Rosetta Stone. But again, countless priceless historical and cultural artifacts were plundered by the French under Napoleon, and most of them have never been returned to Europe. So not so, uh, not so good. Anyway, when Napoleon returned from this mostly failed campaign in Egypt, you might be surprised to learn that he was once again given a hero's welcome, in part because at this stage, at this point in French history, the French Republican government, the directory, it's failing. It's falling apart. And Napoleon was seen as a potential alternative to it. The directory was unpopular. It was bankrupt, totally ineffective in government. Um, I mean, Napoleon didn't even have orders to return to Paris. He just sniffed an opportunity on the wind and so made the most of it. And after getting back to Paris, after realising the weakened state of the directory, Napoleon realises that this is his chance to to take power for himself. And so he formed an alliance of powerful French politicians that were going to back him. And with their support, he overthrew the directory personally. He established himself as consul and gave himself a 10-year term under a new constitution. Now, this constitution... It claimed to uphold French republicanism, but in practice, it was really nothing more than a dictatorship. Napoleon 
preying on the weak and bankrupt directory, established himself as a dictator. The constitution was claimed to have broad popular support. There was a referendum held in 1800 that found that 99.94% of voters were in favour of it. But this was helped by the fact that most opponents didn't vote. There was no secret ballot and people feared reprisals from Napoleon were they to vote against him. And then on top of that, Napoleon's government just lied about the numbers. So democracy dies to thundering applause and Napoleon is confirmed in his position for the next 10 years as consul. And Napoleon's ascent to power comes at a time in European history at the turn of the 19th century where the continent was filled with political turmoil and war and instability and and just general chaos. And Napoleon's ascension, I mean, it didn't do much to change that. In time, of course, it would only really increase this trend. But after taking power, Napoleon, I mean, straight away, got stuck in. Once again, he fought a favourite old enemy of his. Oh, we've heard this song before. Let's play it again. He went after the Austrians in northern Italy. The Battle of Marengo saw the Austrians claim a premature victory as they seemed to force the French into retreat. As the French and, and, and Austrian armies went at it once again, it looked like the Austrians were going to win. But not, Napoleon oversaw a, and personally oversaw, I might add, a, an ordered and a disciplined withdrawal, and then redeployment, and ultimately, Napoleon managed to turn the tide of the Battle of Marengo and was victorious. And the fighting against the Austrians continued after this this battle. It spread across the Alps into Bavaria. And at the end of it, the Austrians were once again defeated. They were forced to surrender. And by 1802, a series of treaties brought peace between the French and the Austrians, as well as the French and the British, bring about an end to the war, well, what we call today the, the War of the Second Coalition. The War of the First Coalition had been uh, fought during the French Revolution as, the, as, as France was transitioning from a, a monarchy to a republic. But the War of the Second Coalition was over. Napoleon had never been more popular in its wake. He's, you know, he's off the bloody winning wars, teaching the, the Austrians a sharp lesson. He's putting France back on the map. It's becoming prosperous and wealthy again. People absolutely loved the bloke. And in 1802, another referendum was held um, on Napoleon's leadership. And again, amazingly, you won't believe this, he got over 99% of the vote for a second time. How about that? But this vote was a little bit different because the constitutional reforms that took place in in, in this referendum, they, just, they, they weren't about just giving Napoleon a 10-year term as consul or anything like that. No, no, no. They made him consul for life. So Napoleon at this point is well on his way to becoming emperor. And unfortunately, um, this period of peace between the wars of the, the Second and Third Coalition, it, look, it, it's where we start to talk about some of the stuff that really didn't reflect well on Napoleon as a leader um, because it was during this period that he focused quite strongly on France's colonial affairs um, and in particular Uh, its possessions on the other side of the Atlantic, dominated by the slave trade. Now, slavery had been abolished in France in 1794, and Napoleon saw it reinstated. He actually reinstituted slavery throughout his realm, even after its abolishment. And um, as deplorable as this is, I'm happy to say that it backfired quite badly on Napoleon and the French because the Haitian Revolution, which is to date the only completely successful slave revolution, 
overthrew the French colonial government in Haiti. So Napoleon's attempt to, you know, re-establish slavery throughout his, his, his realm, it didn't go very smoothly. And France's failure to maintain control of Haiti, coupled with a reignition of hostilities with Britain, actually led Napoleon to remarkable and drastic action in order to keep his coffers full with a, a war looming. He sold over 2.1 million square kilometers of land that was controlled by the French, and he sold it for about seven US dollars per square kilometer. So an absolute bargain. And to whom? Well, I'm sure many American listeners already realize that he sold this land to the very young United States of America, led by the then President Thomas Jefferson. This was called the Louisiana Purchase, and it instantly doubled the size of the United States. It expanded its territory across the Mississippi to halfway through modern-day Wyoming and Colorado, the northern bit of Texas. Um, now, look, of course, the French only really controlled this land in name. Most of it was inhabited by Native Americans. But that didn't matter to the French, who sold off this land irrespective of who lived on it, and uh, a quite an important part of United States history, because obviously, as I say, doubling the size of the country, it was uh, a catalyst for westward expansion and, and colonialization and, and settlement, uh, and of course led to a whole lot of very, very unfortunate consequences uh, for, for Native Americans. But uh, a, a very important part of United States history brought about by Napoleon looking to raise some money in order to fight, uh, to fight the British. And this fight arrived a lot faster than you might think. In 1803, Britain declared war on France and built another coalition of other nations who united together to oppose the French. And this coalition became known as the Third Coalition. As I said, the First Coalition had fought before Napoleon was in charge and was only really a very loose coalition. Uh, the Second Coalition was the one that Napoleon defeated as he became consul. But for the Third Coalition, Britain secured alliances with Sweden, with Russia and with Austria and a couple of other places as well. And the Austrians in particular had a huge bloody chip on their shoulders with France, particularly, you know, as Napoleon had handed them their asses in the, in the last couple of uh, encounters they'd had. And together, this coalition attempted to resist Napoleon. Napoleon, on the other hand, he's gone from strength to strength. In 1804, he used a string of assassination attempts to justify another change to the French constitution, this time establishing himself as the hereditary emperor of the French. Another referendum, another 99% approval rate. And on the 2nd of December, 1804, Pope Pius VII coronated Napoleon as emperor. Napoleon wore a laurel wreath made of gold, and he had the Pope symbolically hold a replica of Charlemagne's crown over his head before putting it on the head of Josephine, who now, of course, was the Empress of the French. And as we move into 1805... The War of the Third Coalition was in full swing, and Emperor Napoleon I, as he's now known, he has to get his skates on. The Holy Roman Empire has joined the coalition, and Napoleon is really now faced with, uh, well, I'm not going to say an uphill battle because he did make it look very easy, but he certainly wasn't able to uh, rest on his now quite literal laurels and take this in his stride. Now, there is so much to get across with the War of the Third Coalition, and we're going to really have to whiz through it. I'm sorry that we're leaving so much out, but we just have to get across the highlights. At the beginning of the war, Napoleon, well-prepared, he has 350,000 well-trained soldiers prepared for war, his Grand Armée, <clears throat> which is also composed of, two, of 22,000 cavalry, thousands of cannons, uh, and all, all of these troops are led by disciplined and very able officers. France did have a weakness, however, and this weakness was, of course, its navy. Britannia still 
did very much rule the waves, and Napoleon knew he couldn't match the British on water. So as a result, he resolved to win the war on the continent, on land, and so marched his troops off at top speed to Ulm in the south of modern-day Germany. The Ulm Manoeuvre, as it's sometimes called, this involved rushing his enormous army into position to outflank and encircle the Austrian army that was gathering there in Ulm. And this meant that the Austrian army was not only vastly outnumbered, but also outpositioned. And they were forced to surrender. I mean, the the fighting had hardly begun before the Austrians had lost. Uh, Napoleon had neutralized 60,000 Austrian troops with the loss of just 2,000 of his own men. And even today, the Ulm campaign, it's regarded by military tacticians as unbridled genius. At the time, Napoleon knew he'd pulled off a masterstroke. He wrote later about uh, the, the Ulm campaign. He wrote, I have destroyed the Austrian army by simply marching. However, it wasn't all monumental victories for, uh, for the French here because a monumental victory was scored by the British at sea. A very famous uh, British victory, of course, when the French and their Spanish allies went up against the British during the Battle of Trafalgar. And this famous battle, of course, claimed the life of the British Admiral Horatio Nelson, but it did secure unquestioned British dominance at sea over the French, and Napoleon never seriously tested the British Navy again. But away from the water on land, things couldn't have been going better for Napoleon. After wiping out the Austrians, he captured their their capital, Vienna, and then he fought the Battle of Austerlitz, which was one of the most important and influential battles in his entire career. In the Battle of Austerlitz, Napoleon faced off against the Allied Holy Roman Empire and Russia. And during this battle, Napoleon orchestrated a very risky but ultimately absolutely devastating manoeuvre when he deliberately weakened one of his own flanks in order to lure the enemy into an attack. This attack was then punished by a counterattack from Napoleon on the centre, which effectively just won the battle on the spot. Austerlitz changed everything. Napoleon's victory at Austerlitz was a world-changing event. I mean, for the very simple reason that after it, the Holy Roman Empire dissolved. The Holy Roman Empire had stood for a thousand years, and in the wake of Austerlitz, it was no more. It was brought undone. The Holy Roman Empire, Francis II, abdicated. And on top of that, in the wake of this battle, Napoleon used the land that he'd captured in fighting the Holy Roman Empire to establish the Confederation of the Rhine, a buffer state between France and, well, not the Holy Roman Empire, it doesn't exist anymore, but the lands that used to make up this, this realm that had stood again for a thousand years. But it didn't just change the geography and politics of continental Europe. It changed Napoleon. He described the Battle of Austerlitz as the finest of all I have fought, and his ambition took off to untold heights. Napoleon, for his entire life, had always been obsessed with winning. I mean, he would cheat while playing cards with his friends to make sure that he won, although apparently he always paid back any money that he would wrongfully win by cheating. But after Austerlitz, Napoleon began to consider himself invincible. He began to consider himself perhaps touched by destiny, that nothing could stand in his way. And the common perception of, of Napoleon these days is that he was an, he was an angry and petty and, and tiny man with an inferiority complex. And in fact, the term Napoleon complex usually refers to, to people, almost always men, who attempt to compensate for their short stature 
with aggression and hostility in order to make up for this, you know, perceived inferiority. And the idea is that Napoleon's lust for conquest and victory was just a result of him being short. And that's not quite true for a couple of reasons. Napoleon wasn't really short is the big one. That's the main reason. He just wasn't, I mean, he wasn't tall, not by any means. He, he wasn't a big man, but I mean, he wasn't that short by the standards of the day. He was 157 centimetres tall, which, you know, by today's standards would certainly make him very short. But I mean, today's humans are taller than ever before due to improvements in nutrition and healthcare and whatever else. But back then he would have been average, slightly below average for a bloke. Uh, and the fact that we all think that he was really short these days is because of some extremely successful British propaganda. The British, in fighting Napoleon, they sought to portray him as all of these things we associate with the Napoleon complex. Aggressive, bitter, petty, very short. And look, he may have had an inferiority complex. It's difficult to argue against that. He, it, it probably was stemmed on him being bullied as a kid for not speaking French that well or his outsider status as a Corsican, but it definitely wasn't his height. Look, the debate about the psychology of Napoleon will rage on and on, of course, but it's safe to say that all the stuff about him being short isn't really grounded in reality, and instead is the, the basis of this is actually very, very effective. I mean, outstandingly effective British propaganda. So effective we're still falling for it 200 years later. In truth, Napoleon was often described as ruthlessly efficient, intelligent, strict, demanding, but he also had a magnetic and almost hypnotic ability to inspire those that he led. And all this is in contrast with his physical appearance, I might add, because, you know, he wasn't ravishingly handsome. He wasn't tall and strong. He was quite unremarkable. And, and many people who met the bloke actually described him as, as disappointing and unimpressive, particularly considering his reputation. But Make no mistake, the, the, the military genius of Napoleon and the way that he conducted himself throughout his career was based on a level of intelligence and composure and ruthless efficiency that uh, really was the driving force behind. He, I mean, look, he lusted for conquest. He lusted for victory, certainly. But, you know, it, it just, it wasn't, despite what you've heard, it wasn't because he was short. Anyway, we better speed up here. We're running out of time. There's still a lot to get across. Napoleon's victory at Austerlitz effectively brought about an end to the War of the Third Coalition. The Confederation of the Rhine placed a buffer zone between France and its enemies to the east. But the Napoleonic Wars continued. And before the end of 1806, the War of the Fourth Coalition had begun. In this one, Prussia, one of the major successors to the Holy Roman Empire, joined Britain and Russia and other allies in taking the fight to Napoleon once again. And let me tell you this, it did not go well for them. After the outbreak of this war, Napoleon took the initiative. He invaded Prussia with 180,000 troops. And very similarly to Ulm, he swept in at great speed to neutralize the Prussian army before they could really get going. Prussia was utterly defeated, just like Austria had been at the battles of Jena and Auerstedt. And Napoleon marched on Berlin, the Prussian capital, and captured it with ease. And from here, he issued the Berlin Decree, which established Napoleon's continental system. You may have heard of this before. This was a series of laws that prohibited anyone on the continent from trading with Britain. 
This attempted to cut Britain off from its allies on the continent and weaken the coalition economically. Remember, Britain's greatest strength is its navy. And so if there is essentially a trade embargo from the Britannic Isles to the continent, that's going to greatly weaken the the basis, the central source of British power, which is its navy, as the commercial side of British naval supremacy was undermined by the continent. Well, I say undermined, it wasn't really, man. Like, the continental system just didn't really work. The the, the French were unable to really uphold on or enforce this blockade that they'd put on Britain, and the British still smuggled all sorts of stuff into and out of Europe, even with the continental system, system in place. So a very good idea, a well-conceived idea from Napoleon, but very poorly executed. It didn't really work. Anyway... The fighting continued into 1807, and just as he'd done with the Austrians and the Prussians, Napoleon now moved to crush the Russians as well at the Battle of Friedland. This defeat at the hands of the French forced the Russians to a super peace, and they threw in the towel, and ultimately the treaties of Tilsit ended the War of the Fourth Coalition, and very interestingly, and quite unexpectedly, as part of this peace process, Russia ended up not just capitulating to the French, but also allied to them, if you'll believe it. The Russian Tsar Alexander I ended up getting on very well with Napoleon. The two of them got on like a house on fire. Uh, They bonded over their shared dislike of the British. And as a result, a new alliance was forged between the Russians and the French. Really not something you'd see coming. What you might see coming instead is what happened to Prussia as part of the peace process and the the treaties of Tilsit here because they were treated horrifically. Napoleon handed about half of Prussia's territory over to his brother Jerome to lead and then looted and plundered cities like Berlin, causing enormous ill will between Prussians and the French. After the war had been fought, and after having made you know both friends and enemies in the wake of the, the War of the Fourth Coalition, Napoleon returned to France, but the fighting continued, and this time in Iberia. He began a war in Iberia, the Peninsular War, as he sought to punish Portugal for not upholding his continental system. The Peninsular War spread into uh, into Spain as well, which had previously been France's allies. Um, and Napoleon, his focus on this war and, and bringing Portugal and ultimately Spain to heel was cut short before the Peninsular War was fully resolved when, for the third time, Napoleon's old enemy reared its head once again and asked for another. Guess who? It's the Austrians. Again, the War of the Fifth Coalition began when Austria launched a surprise attack on Napoleon, but Napoleon, he rushed to join his troops and he managed to push the Austrians back. Look, this was a mixed affair. This wasn't the one-and-done battle that uh, Napoleon was used to when it was uh, when he came to fighting the Austrians. Uh, Napoleon did suffer a major defeat at the hands of the Austrians at the Battle of Aspern-Essling. This was his first defeat on land in 10 years. Napoleon withdrew, he regrouped, and then six weeks later crushed the Austrians by crossing the Danube and absolutely pulling their pants down. The Battle of Wagram saw Napoleon beat the Austrians again before their British allies could help them. And so in 1809, the Austrians capitulated once more and signed the Treaty of Schönbrunn, which forced them to hand over a huge amount of territory. Huge amount of territory became part of France. The poor old Austrians just couldn't learn their lessons in fighting Napoleon. It seems the War of the Fifth Coalition was effectively over after the uh, Austrians lost. And with the exception of the ongoing Peninsular War, this brought about a long and lasting peace on the European continent. 
And when I say long and lasting, that is very much through the lens of the Napoleonic Wars, which is to say it lasted about three years. Not too long at all in the broad scheme of things, but when Napoleon's at the helm, three years apiece is as a long time, really. It wasn't too long at all before Napoleon was back at war, but this time, this time, he didn't prosper quite as much as before. In fact, quite the opposite, as his fortunes really took a turn for the worse. Napoleon's efforts so far had been met with success after success. He lost only a handful of battles, he won all the wars against all the coalitions that opposed him, and he enjoyed immense popularity and support at home in France. And look, as far as successes go, it's not over yet. France is still yet to achieve its territorial apex under Napoleon. He hasn't yet formally converted his realm into an empire. However, for the most part, the back half of Napoleon's story is one of grim defeat as one of the greatest conquerors the world has ever seen, was finally thwarted. And that's the story for next week. We're going to talk about Napoleon's disastrous campaign into Russia, his defeat in the War of the Sixth Coalition, his exile and subsequent return to power, and then, of course, the legendary Battle of Waterloo, which finally brought Napoleon undone. There is so much more to talk about with this bloke, so I hope you'll join me next week as we finish off the story of Napoleon Bonaparte. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans, for this week at least, as we will continue the story next week, pick up where we left off and talk about what happened to Napoleon in the back half of his career. And of course, as we've said... Didn't go quite as well for him as the first half did. Anyway, I do hope you, uh, you're enjoying, I was going to say you've enjoyed, but you're still in the process of enjoying Napoleon's story. And I hope you'll stick around and come back next week when we hear about the rest of it. In the meantime, of course, plenty of old episodes for you to get across and you can find them all at halfasshistory.net. Uh, old links to download them if you want them uh, stored uh, safely away. Or you can just stream them, of course, at your uh, podcast uh, provider of choosing itunes spotify whatever else you can go and subscribe there leave a review if you feel like it you don't have to but if you feel like it it's always very much appreciated and of course the out al- got, got to massage that algorithm to try to get half us history out and about uh, and if you want to support the show in a more direct financial way there are a couple of ways you can do this of course you do have a merch shop you can go and buy all sorts of merch at the half us history merch shop find links at, at uh, half us history.net or you can support the show directly via Patreon, patreon.com slash history. And in doing so, you'll gain access to exclusive member benefits, things like show notes, which, uh, as I've mentioned a couple of times, actually, are very, very useful study guides. Uh, I've been told by a couple of uh, listeners who have thanked me for putting together very informal but uh, still reasonably comprehensive uh, study guides to all of the topics there. Um, but also you get access to shows a little bit ahead of time before The Great Unwashed and uh, uncut episodes as well with all the burps and farts and mistakes and everything. And, you know, when I'm doing, you know, French history and trying to pronounce French names, holy moly, there's there's a lot of good ones in there. Although I actually didn't do too bad this week, I don't think. Um, anyway, uh, that is that for another episode of Half House History. And I'm looking forward to having you company next week when we conclude the story of Napoleon Bonaparte. But until then, as ever, leaving you with... I forgot to thank everyone. Thanks for listening, by the way, and especially thank you, Patreons. You're the best. Get amongst it. Let's go. Love the Patreons. Thank you so much for the uh, for the support over over the, the weeks, months, and years that you've been with me. And uh, wait. Oh, my goodness. Hang on. It's been four years, has it? I haven't kept track of this. It's July. It's the fourth year anniversary of Half-House History, isn't it? I'm actually just realizing this now as I record. 
I'm going to check this live as I'm recording. Is it is it happy birthday to, to Half Ass History? Frederick the Great episode one was the 1st of July, 2018. So it was last week. Oops. Happy birthday, Half Ass History, I guess. Thanks to everyone, especially those who have been there since episode one. Incredible to have your support over such a long period of time and I don't know, maybe I'll remember next year and we'll do something special for the fifth anniversary. Anyway, that is that. <laughs> We're done, man. I'm not going to try to think up something here on the fly while I'm recording this episode. Oops. See you back in next week for more half House History. Looking forward to it. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Reddit historian Mr. Johnny Quest, who asks, which came first, the French military leader or the three-flavoured ice cream? <laughs>